Like how many people would you say are monitoring, watching, engaging with a single driverless vehicle in a ride? Yeah. So to start, I think they have about uh, 20, maybe 15 to 30 fully autonomous vehicles uh, riding around. So I think with that, that kind of support crew, I think the fleet response, there can be one person watching multiple vehicles probably five and i and i don't hear i feel uh when i talk to writer support there's many familiar voices so they they don't have that many people it's it's like the same folks over and over again so i i don't think it's too many i think i went to their chandler depot and they only have like 15 roadside assistance vehicles parked behind it hello and welcome to the atonicast I am one of your co-hosts, Kirsten Korosek, Transportation Editor at TechCrunch. And I'm Alex Roy, the founder of the Human Driving Association, the co-host of the No Parking Podcast, and the director of very, very, very secret and special operations at Argo AI, whom I do not represent on this show, and especially this episode. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors, and the Communications Director at Partners for Automated Vehicle Education. And um, I'm excited about today's episode because um, this is we're going to be discussing um, a, a video that uh, has been probably the most popular piece of of uh, autonomous vehicle content uh, in in several months online. Uh, it's not Total uh, Recall, not not the Johnny Cab clips. No, this is this is a strictly nonfiction show that we put on here. Mm. Um, and uh, and and I'm really excited. So you you may have seen um, this video uh, in which a Waymo sort of encounters. Well, I don't want to I don't want to talk about it too much because you know we actually have. Uh, the man who uh, who took the video himself uh, with us today in his first Atonicast appearance, uh, Joel Johnson. Welcome to the Atonicast. But also known as JJ Ricks. Right. Yeah. A uh, longtime listener, first time caller. Yeah. Thanks for having <laughs> me, guys. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, so Joel, you may know him better as JJ Ricks. Uh, JJ Ricks Studio is his YouTube account. Um, so Joel, why don't we before we get into this ride, which again, yeah, I think two hundred forty thousand views on that on that video. Um, which is a lot for a video that's 35 minutes long. Um, <laughs> but but let's give so, let's give people some context. First of all, um, like how did you first sort of get into autonomous vehicles? Like, are, are you do, do you like do you work in the autonomous vehicle space? Just give people a little bit of background on on who you are and sort of how you got into this topic. Yeah, so I'm yeah Joel Johnson, a university student at Arizona State, uh, studying CS. And so like ever since I was a little kid, I've been super into technology. So I have my finger on the pulse of, of the technology news. And I think it was the first time I saw the Google self-driving car project in like a news piece in 2012. So at that point, I was aware of them. Then, you know, skip forward a few years, uh, December 2018, they announced their um, their Waymo One program, So right? So, um, and like, hey, it's coming to my area, Chandler, Arizona, right? So I, I immediately emailed their PR people. I'm like, hey, how, how can I be in this? Right. And they said, oh, sorry. Yeah, it's for pre-approved people, whatever. So at that point, I just kind of gave up. And then six months later, uh, I got an email that said, you're off the wait list. So I, so I was like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so then so that, so that's when be, I started my journey. Yeah. Gotcha. And to be clear, you're 
were you, is that part of the early writer program or was this when Waymo was sort of open to the public? Have you had to sign a non-disclosure agreement? I mean, you make videos, so I assume things are okay now. Just explain a little bit what's going on with that. Right. So I started off in a, under an NDA yeah, in the early writer program. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it took a while. I was like, I was on the self-driving car subreddit and I was like following AV news and there were so many questions people were asking like, well, what does Waymo react to this situation? Like, or how does this work? And like, when you know all these answers, it's incredibly frustrating to not be able to go, Hey, I, you know, I know this. So I think what actually prompted me to ask Waymo to put me in the public program was the Atonicast episode with uh, John Krafchick. And he's, I think he said something like, we are, our writers never post anything on social media, but we celebrate when people post. And he's like, please post, go have fun with it. Right. So at there, I was sitting there like, John, everybody has an NDA. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> so I, yeah, at that point, I, yeah, I reached out to their Twitter people and I said, hey, can I be in the public program? And they said, yes. So that, that was March 2020. And we all know what happened in March 2020. So, uh, you know, then it, shut down until October. And that's when I started making videos, mostly out of a, a love for the, the video making craft and for the technology. So it just kind of, it was a perfect blend. Yeah. When you were uh, in the early rider program, how often were you using the service? Um, not as often. Yeah. It was maybe about once a month um, just because, you know, I wasn't recording. It was just kind of a, a cool experience. We had safety drivers. So it was, I wasn't, like as into it as I am now, but I still got a general idea of the experience. So, and then you're going to university, um, which is in Tempe. Chandler's obviously somewhat neighboring it. So, would you like travel to Chandler and then just test the vehicle and then like travel <laughs> back to your uh, on campus? I don't know if you're living on campus or not, but walk me through those early times. Even if it was once a month, was it just meant to be more exploratory and just experience the 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 ride and how it works and the app. Yeah, I since I'm a, a commuter student for the first year, taking a break because of the pandemic. But for that that first year, yeah, I uh, I actually yeah I lived at home as a commuter student, so I would use Waymo mostly as an excuse. Uh, or I would uh, like when somebody asks me, "Hey, can you go to the store and get?" the groceries i would say oh sure and then i would take a waymo to a far away grocery store because that would maximize the distance of the ride right so yeah it was mostly just yeah it was definitely exploratory um and just kind of like as a hobby because i really wanted to experience the technology and like how how many rides i mean you have a, a bunch of videos on your youtube account um and i assume not all of them have been videoed. do you know how many miles or how many rides that you've been on so far yeah, let's see. I'm looking at my spreadsheet. I have 151 rides, uh, about uh, 1,160 miles ish logged so far. I I wonder how many people who don't work for an AV program have over a thousand miles in AV. I I know that I certainly am not even anywhere close to that. How many <laughs> miles do you have, Alex? Uh, in Argo cars, a lot. I don't know. I mean, a lot. Uh, I probably, I'm going to guess in Waymo's because, you know, when I go to Phoenix, when I go to Chandler, I, I go get rides. I, I don't know. A couple hundred max, probably less. Um, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. the thing is, the thing is, you know, I'm coming from Gilbert, where I've got family, and so I cruise on over to the southeast corner of the geofence, and then I go to uh, Zia Records. You know where that is, Joel? Um, I I also go to the southeast corner of the geofence, but I don't know exactly where the records. Uh, I, I I go to the record stores and comic book shops. Then I go to the fashion. What is it Fashion Square Mall? Yeah, uh, Chandler Fashion Center. Yeah, I I go there, and then I. Uh, do like you do things I don't need to do for fun. And then it just screws <laughs> around. Um, I think it's fun. I mean, I wish it, I wish the fence went a little further east. I mean, I wish, I wish I went to Gilbert. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like uh, it doesn't uh, like if you, unless you spend your whole life inside that Chandler box, you need a car. Mm-hmm. And that's a little frustrating for me. Cause I have friends who live there who would love to just rely on it. Uh, I've had mostly really good rides. I've had good experiences. Yeah. So, why don't you tell us <laughs> about that day? Yeah, because this one, this one video, this one ride that you took has clearly gotten a lot more attention than than you know most of your other stuff. Um, what, what? Yeah, what happened? Like, walk us through. You know, wh- for people who haven't seen the video and aren't going to watch it, just tell us what happened. Okay, so um, I'll take you through my normal recording session. I just pick a, I pick a place. And then I pick a starting point and then I just do a multi-stop trip where I go from A to B and B to A, basically. So then that makes up two videos. Um, and that's a nice, easy hour. Uh, so basically what that, that video was the second leg of that trip. So it was going from one shopping mall to another, basically, from the Safeway to So the Yeah, the first ride, the uh, number 53 in the JJ Ricks Rides with Waymo series it was actually one of the best driving performances I've ever seen from Waymo. And then 54 was that video. So it was, and it was the same car. And I know it has nothing to do with the being the same car doing the, but it, it was still kind of funny. Like the duality of that. It was like, <laughs> but yeah, it was, a, it was a normal recording session. Um, so, and it, it, Waymo was doing as it did and taking detours uh, seemingly needless detours to go around little bits of traffic and which has escalated to a point where uh, yesterday it took it like it took a route that was twice as long as it needed to be which i, th- I think is a little bit ridiculous but you know oh, obviously well, i'm not engineer engineer an engineer there so um I how long has say. that been happening so so you're saying that that they're going they're not just taking the quickest route between point a and point b they're they're going out of their way and and it's to avoid specific thing and like are they are they communicating that in the in the ride experience or sort of what's the, the background on that? Yeah, it's yeah you pick a you you pick a pickup and a drop off and you have no control over the the route as you know. Um, so it'll it'll just choose whatever it does and yeah typically it doesn't go the the fastest route where you would just go oh turn right on this road go straight up and then there you are. But instead it would go oh I'm gonna go over here and snake through this neighborhood and then turn over here and through some back alley you know whatever and to the writer it's not really clear why i mean i know they say oh we do that for the for the traffic conditions and that sort of deal and i think on the the ride yesterday there was some kind of police activity on the road where it was avoiding which makes sense but it's just frustrating when i'm trying to when i'm trying to demonstrate the technology that it actively avoids what i'm trying to demonstrate <laughs> so it's like does it seem that that it generally avoids certain situations. I mean, you mentioned the police presence, but um, have you seen a pattern as to what it's avoiding? Is it avoiding like 
harder left-hand turns or is it avoiding construction cones or is it avoiding, you know, certain things repeatedly over time? With the the unprotected left turns, it's really improved at those in the last few months. And so, I, so I'd say it's not really, at least I don't think it's going out of its way to avoid those. It, I'd say the construction zones probably. And now we know why, um, because I, I've seen it handle construction cones or construction cones and uh, just areas like that in general, just fine in the past. So that that's why this came as a bit of a shock to me. Uh, because I, you know, I was like, yeah, usually it goes through construction zone just fine. It creeps its way through, it goes around and we, we go on just fine. Right. But so that, that's why this little, this video came as a shock to me and I guess everybody else. Cause my, I'm used, I'm used to like a loyal viewership of around a thousand and then 250,000 is a little bit <laughs> extra. Right. But. So, so you're in, so you're, you're going on a, a normal ride is the second leg of that ride. Mm-hmm. Um, so describe sort of what, what happened from your perspective. Yeah. From my perspective. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, just what, what, yeah. As you were, as you're riding sort of, what did you, you know, what did you experience? What did you, what did you see happening? Well, yeah, it was, it was just a, a ride like any other. I was just doing my normal commentary and then all of a sudden, you know, it wants to turn right out of this neighborhood. Usually has no problem with that. And then I, th- I thought, I'm like, I saw those uh, construction cones blocking the the lane that it wanted to turn into. And usually it would reroute around that, but for some, whatever reason it didn't. So, and then that, that video just kind of like slowly escalates as it gets worse and worse and worse. And so because of my, my previous experience, I wasn't, I wasn't afraid I'm like, I, I trust the system, you know, I've ridden a thousand miles or whatever. I, every time it gets into a tight spot, either it figures it out or remote operator or remote assist technically, uh, you know, gets me out of it. So it's, I had no precedent on, on which to be, you know, a, afraid of what was happening. And, you know, looking back, I'm like, oh, actually, yeah, that is kind of a lot of traffic, you know, going around the, around the vehicle, but. It's um yeah I haven't been afraid I've been taking rides since yeah I I still trust it it's it was an anomaly for sure but I yeah I I don't think that shook my trust honestly yeah let's let's help people sort of visualize exactly what so you you're taking a right hand turn mm-hmm. and you're turning into a lane that normally might be open but is is blocked off with with traffic cones right mm-hmm. yeah. So and then the uh, the cones are spaced apart uh, for about half a mile farther down the road. And so then, what did what did the vehicle do once it once it was turned in? There? How quickly did it realize it was, you know, sort of, yeah, just just how did it handle that? Because um, you noticed it as it was happening. Mm-hmm. You know, what did the car do next? Yeah, so it it noticed the cones. I figured it was probably going to be stuck, or it might take a little bit to make the decision and then make the turn. And so it, it called uh, rider support and roadside assistance maybe about a minute into just being stuck and trying to figure out what to do. Uh, I'm thinking somebody nudged it, so it it, tur- it made the turn, but then it stopped diagonally in the middle of the road, and then eventually it backed up, blocking the entire lane. And then you know, it went for it. Just seemed like there was internal miscommunication, and, you know, according to their their statement. The official statement they issued me that's probably what happened um but it was definitely odd on all accounts i've never I've never seen anything like that 
from start to finish, I mean, I know you've edited the video a bit, but um, I don't know if you tracked the actual live time from start when it first sort of hit the its first obstacle, if you will, like if it met its first challenge to when you were actually someone showed up physically and you were on your way. How long was that about? So the trouble started about 10 minutes into the video and let's see roadside assistance boarded the vehicle at about 30 minutes. So yeah, 20 minutes or so. Okay. They took for them to, to board the vehicle and, and disengage. And I think partially the delay is the amount of times it, I won't say it tried to escape. I mean, from, from an outsider's perspective, that's what it would look like. But you know, every time they would, the roadside assistance people would creep up behind the car, it would pull away again. Uh, and I think that happened three times in total, which was kind of hilarious. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you know. what I find uh, interesting, funny about this is like we can all agree it did not go as well as it could have. But when you buy any product, it like literally doesn't matter what it is. The better the product, the more, the more you have an expectation that if you call somebody, a human will answer and solve it. And the, the mark of a bad product is that there's no one to call and there's no answer. The mark of a good product is that a human will and it will get solved. This could have gone better, but it, it, to me, it's like, it's, it's, it just seems like early days of a system that just needs to be improved. I mean, when I say system, I don't mean the autonomy tech itself. I'm talking about the customer service chain. Every pro, a luxury product is defined by customer service. And as I was watching this, all I could think about, especially when I was reading the comments in your video, was these people, I'm sorry to say, Ed's going to, I'm curious going to complain. These, the Tesla fans, like making fun of Waymo. I mean, I'm, I'm actually going to defend Waymo a little bit here. Uh, making fun of Waymo as if the existence of remote support tele-guidance, I don't know, I'm not sure exactly how they do it. And I mean, I have some information, but that the existence of a support system when things go wrong is somehow a sign of failure. Now, there clearly, there were suboptimal results in the system. But the notion that an autonomous vehicle, a Tesla, if they could ever be made autonomous, could possibly be deployed without some kind of customer service and support system is absurd. It is absolutely absurd. And I, I can any of you name a product that's good that doesn't have a phone number and a human being on the other end? Hmm. Anyone? <laughs> that's a Anyone? good point. Yeah. I, I can't think. I mean, <clears throat> in fact, if, if if I can't get someone on the phone fast, I go nuts. I do. I want to change products. And yet you own a Tesla. I've heard that service, getting service on the phone can be pretty tricky. It, it, here's the thing. Uh, they, they, despite having the full self-driving capability option paid for. Um, my problems with my Tesla have been limited to what you'd find in any other car. And there's an app. And I, like, in fact, last week, in fact, I'm not good. In fact, this is a whole separate episode, guys. The Prindle display at my, one of my Teslas no longer functions. The car is now disabled. And so I had to contact through the app customer service. And guess what? A human messaged me later that day to ask me some more questions so I could submit upload pictures. Does that mean that their support system has failed? Of course not. Okay, let's get back to JJ's ride. So so <laughs> you mentioned so and and maybe this is a good time to talk about sort of what Waymo's statement that they made, like their explanation for for what happened. And um I 
Yeah, I'm curious if if I, I don't actually have it in front of me at the moment. Do you want to just sort of summarize essentially what they what they said, and um, and then maybe like you know, do do you believe them? Like, is it does their explanation make make sense to you? Yeah, I I hmm. yeah. So they <laughs> yeah they they <laughs> they reached out uh, when they when they saw my tweet that said, "Oh, get ready, this video is going to be crazy." You know, yeah. <laughs> Um, and so I, I went back and forth with uh, a, a friendly person on their, their their comms team. So the but yeah, they they issued me that that statement. I have it in front of me. They basically uh, they, they they just say that the fleet response team, which is a lot of commenters seem to confuse with writer support, and a lot of other commenters seem to confuse with roadside assistance. Those those are three separate teams, as far as I know. Um, but they say that yeah, the fleet uh, fleet response provided incorrect guidance, which made it challenging to for the car to resume its intended route. So, did your attorney give you that language? <laughs> <laughs> no. Challenging, yeah. I, go on. Right, yeah. This, I, I, that's all. I, that's all I really know. Um, you know, from uh, everybody else has seen the video, so you you pretty much know all that I know when it when it comes to how uh, what actually happened, but. Yeah. Well, I think what you have, like in any complex system, you have a cascading series of policies which don't always interlock successfully. <laughs> and this, and you see this in every area of, of industry and business, is if two or more things go wrong simultaneously, and there isn't a policy for that, like re- redundancy between people. This is this is not just an autonomy problem. This is an internal organizational issue. Uh, then things can go south. Right. And and it seems like the issue here was as much that and and this is I think Waymo's statement kind of reflects this, but it, it was less that, you know, so it was clearly something went wrong from from the beginning. It turned into a lane that was that was closed and and it shouldn't have been there. But it was actually the recovery from that that really made this so kind of um absurd and and just sort of attention grabbing, right? I mean, that's um which is which is interesting. Like I, I think that you know, when people think about, oh, there's this video of of an AV screwing up, they think, you know, the screw up is everything. But as Alex says, it was it was one mistake kind of leads to to other challenges, right? And and can you explain like what what are the different response te- like what what they each do? You mentioned there were three three separate teams that to uh, an outsider could could sound similar, um, and like how they explain how each one of maybe like you know, what their role was in, in this particular ride. Yeah. So there's the, to start off with the one that the rider interacts with the most is rider support. So they're the, they're the people in the, presumably the call center. Uh, and they, they're, I guess they've been trained to handle all the, the questions that a rider might have. Uh, they're kind of the, the frontline PR people. So they, and then they have contacts with, I, I could hear the rider support lady typing in on the phone call. So I think she was talking to, Probably a fleet response or somebody. So like, um, but yeah, so yeah, writer support is the people you call and they have the information and fleet response are the people, uh, I guess the, I guess that's the new name for, uh, what is it? Remote assist. I don't know. Yeah. Mm. Um, but so yeah, the remote assist people or fleet response, uh, have, Oh yeah. So they, they give the car directions, I guess, uh, a route, like a planned route, or they say that's a that's a truck, that's a that's a car. No, that car is not likely to move. No, and they've they've gone out. They've said, oh no, we can't joystick the car, right? We can't. 
and I, I talked to uh, some guys from Phantom Auto who I think have been on the show previously. Our friend Jordan. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think it was Jordan. They, yeah, they um, have some thoughts about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm sure they <laughs> had a, a very long call, and he was like, "We this, yeah." He said, well, "You you guys can probably guess what he what we talked about." But yeah, so the yeah fleet response basically just gives the gives the car direction, uh, basically, and then a path uh, planning basically, path planning. right? Yeah, to the best of my knowledge, at least. And then uh, roadside assistance um, uh, intervenes. They're the people with the boots on the ground, if you will. They they get to the car, they disengage it, they drive you to your destination if something goes wrong. So there's so there there's some kind of communication or miscommunication going on there, at least from from the outsider's perspective. That's what it looked like it happened because usually this process, this takeover process, is pretty smooth. So it, yeah, it was a bit shocking. Uh, yeah. How how often do you deal with all these all three of these teams, right? You so I imagine like uh, the customer support feature. It's you know a, a lot of you know, uh, uh, but the but the fleet response and and the and the roadside assistance. Again, I think people don't really think of someone coming to the vehicle and physically taking it over. How often does that happen? Like, or has it happened to you? Um, and what has that experience kind of been like? Similar to this or different? I I um I interact with rider support a lot more than I do the roadside assistance, like obviously, because uh, they they handle the, the questions and that sort of thing. So I rider support maybe once in every five to ten rides, and then roadside assistance maybe once in every fifty. Uh, it is it is rare. Uh, but they have they have uh, I think that was my third time being in the vehicle when they actually when they show up and disengage it. Uh, and I I have. I think I have most of them on video as well. So if people go through like the video archive on my website and they search like roadside assistance and you can see all the times that they disengage the vehicle or made an appearance in general in the video because they they used to follow the cars kind of like a chase car. Um, and I'm very sure of this, though they deny it. I'm sure that they, <laughs> they used to follow the, the fully autonomous vehicles one to one. They don't anymore. And they, uh, as explained to me by rider support, and I believe them because I haven't I haven't seen roadside assistance following me in a, in a good little while there. But um, I have I have so many pictures of them trailing the car, showing up in the the parking lot before the car does. You know, it's, it's like it's just absurd, right? The uh, the interesting thing to me is that the number of people that it takes to support a single driverless vehicle, meaning no, no human safety operator behind the wheel. Um, in your estimation, certainly back when they had a chase car, you knew you could count that one person or maybe two people in that vehicle. I don't know. Um, but, but in your estimation, based on all the rides you've done, like how many people would you say are monitoring, watching, engaging with a single driverless vehicle uh, in a ride? Yeah, so to start, I think they have about uh twenty, maybe fifteen to thirty fully autonomous vehicles uh riding around. So I think with that that kind of support crew, I think the fleet response there can be one person watching multiple vehicles. So probably five. And I and I don't hear I feel uh when I talk to rider support, there's many familiar voices. So they, they don't have that many people. It's it's like the same folks over and over again. So I it is definitely a lot uh, per video, but it's not, I don't think it's too many. I think I went to their Chandler Depot and they only have like 15 
uh, roadside assistance vehicles parked behind it. But um, yeah, that's that's just by my rough estimates. So they're able to, um, as you mentioned, you know, one person might be, you know, monitoring and responding to multiple to multiple vehicles or road assistance calls. It's really when, um, or I'm sorry, ride support calls. It's only when road assistance is engaged that then you're like adding more people to the to the scene, I guess. Or yeah, I think so. Probably more right. attention. Yeah. So what is interesting to me and. Joel, I'm thinking you might have some insight into this. Alex, you might as well. Actually, I all can't three of you wait might. to talk about it. You, you, all three of you might. So, uh, when the when the when the video first came out, there was definitely some Schadenfreude happening with the Tesla fans, and also a I'm sure purely coincidental tweet from Cruz <laughs> showing <Zooks>. video. <laughs> yeah, Zooks showing video of of them going through complicated scenarios. But what is your sense of the industry thinking or response on that? Not Waymo, but the rest of the industry. Are they um, sort of supportive of Waymo uh, quietly or maybe more publicly kind of uh, pointing out Waymo's "Quote unquote failure," just to prop themselves up. And where is the what's the what's your sense on the industry thoughts on this? I do Any keep my you? I do keep my finger on the the pulse of like the uh, AV news stuff, um, but I mostly I don't I don't really receive any communication from Waymo or any other the, the companies. I think it's. Kind of like the engineers probably have friendly rivalry. Like some of some of the people I've I've talked to, uh, who have, I've had it along riding with uh, as guests, have been uh, pretty friendly. And I think everybody's working towards a similar goal. But I'm I'm not really an, an expert, and I'm just a university student, right? So I do this as a hobby. Um, <laughs> but I, I I think I think everybody's kind of friendly. If like they kind of poke at each other a little bit. Um, but yeah, it, it seems mostly friendly to, to me. And I, I think that's, that's kind of nice to have where, where, you know, as in the, the smartphone world, it's a little more, uh, insane, right. But Alex, what do you think? I mean, I know that early on you said, you know, I'm going to defend Waymo here. And that was your, you know, personal perspective and not representing Argo, but you talk to a lot of folks in the industry. So, you know, separate yourself from working at Argo right now um, amongst the people that you're speaking with from various companies, you know, I'm going to need at least three hours. What? (laughs) I'm going to need at least three hours to complete my thoughts on this topic. Okay. Uh, Why, (laughs) why does the U why is the U S Navy be able to project force any, almost anywhere in the world so quickly? because an aircraft carrier, I mean, they probably, their time is coming to an end in an age of drones, but an aircraft carrier and like its support group is the probably the most complex uh, logistical deployment of like mass machinery and technology with thousands of people involved in the history of mankind other than going to the moon, except that we only went to the moon a few times. When a carrier task force goes out, like, like the temple of operations of aircraft that have to take off, land, be maintained, refuel, re- refueled, refitted, the people, like every second on that deck matters in terms of keeping the, your planes up in the air. And if there's a fire, the fire prevention teams and like the firefighters on a carrier 
are trained in a, to a level that would surpass, I think, any major American city. And if you go back to World War II, why did Japanese carriers sink and American carriers often survive when they were struck? Is because the the training and policies on board the American carriers, the the uh, damage control parties, were trained at a level you just didn't see in other navies. Now. When you think about autonomous vehicle deployments in a city, the complexity and the tempo of operations necessary to commercialize and keep the cars on the road, the uptime, the profitability comes down to minutes, even seconds. Everything's got to work and be maintained. So when people ask when autonomous vehicle fleet is going to be deployed, you can't even consider you can't, to have a, the timeline is not the technology developments or meeting some arbitrary safety metric, it's everything else behind it. It's like saying that the carrier task force is defined by how fast the ship can sail. It's just not. It's defined by everything in the train behind it, the logistics, the reliability, the supply chain for spare parts, and everything up and down the chain, only as strong as the weakest link. So Waymo's got some work to do here in terms of the policies and procedures. But the fact is, there is a system that needs to be improved uh, and anyone who pretends that their company doesn't need to figure this out is just an unserious person when discussing this topic. And, and by that, I mean everybody talking about Tesla robotaxis arriving on any short or medium timeline, if not ever. Every company in this sector is working on this, whether they're saying it or not. And I see these things in motion at Argo. And I have friends, peers at other companies who think about the same stuff. And you know, I have great, actually, sympathy for, for Waymo in the situation. I would have thought they'd, this would, would have been tighter by now, but it is an indication that they're thinking about it. And that's why when you think about companies, trucking companies, logistics, the kind of partners that an autonomous vehicle developer needs to deploy the technology, those partners have to bring with them that long tail of reliability, logistics, and, and fleet management, without which there is no business. There just isn't. So... Uh, and this, these are the questions I don't hear often enough when analysts uh, ask about deployment timelines and what's the business. They really should be asking, it's like, what does the fleet operations team look like? Like, who's running that? How many years of experience do they have? Like, what does the facility look like? What's the supply chain? Where are the parts? Because every machine that moves needs to be maintained and not just operate well, but be maintained well. And Airlines have figured this out. <laughs> so, and every time a plane doesn't take off on time, it's because something like this went wrong. We just don't see it. Okay. Well, you didn't answer my question. That is my that's, my that's my answer. That's my <laughs> answer. You made some really good points, but you didn't answer my question as to what your sense is of the rest of the industry. But, but I'll give you my my sense is that um, what I would hope that the industry would be when they look at that is to realize how hard it is going to be for them when they commercially launch. Because it is very easy to show in a controlled testing environment, look how our vehicle can handle this. But as Alex noted, um, the fleet management piece, the customer service piece, how the app interacts, all of that um, will make the difference of people using the service or not. And each one of those moments in the chain is another complication. So that's what I would hope that the industry would be thinking. I think that they should look at it and be a little worried because they'll have maybe realized that they haven't started commercial scale, you know, pilots yet. And I don't know, maybe they're coming in it with overconfidence and they think that they can do it better, but it just shows you how complex it is. 
It also makes me think that there's huge opportunity for other startups to come along that can handle the fleet management side of things. I'll be honest with you. I'm not convinced that the fleet management stuff can be done by a startup. Really? No. I you think see, like an auto, just, like who, who, who's best positioned to do fleet management? Automakers I mean, or rental there, companies? There, there are already companies out there. Rental companies are among them. There's trucking companies, there's, you know, people like Penn Scheming. Like if, yeah, there are companies out there doing transit large, operators like yeah, Transdev and large scale yeah. fleet op management. If, if a startup showed up and said, I, I got an idea for how to do this, I got six people, give us money, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that seriously. I could see them reducing friction within organizations that already manage stuff but fleet management is it's not a it's not a tech problem as much as something that tech can improve uh it's it's a sure. human experience it's a human experience like it's like uh, i don't know what metaphor there is other than it is what it is and service. it's got to be done service right service and and organization right management which are you know very different than than creative solutions to tech problems but on this point of of how technology can potentially improve the, the customer experience and the fleet management. Joel, I'm curious. I mean, you said you, you spoke with Jordan from, uh, from Phantom Auto. I, I'm not asking you to, di- you know, disclose any details of that conversation or anything, but I just, I'm wondering sort of, you know, because, because Waymo has not, they, they've been, it's, it's funny because Waymo gets accused um, by, you know, the Tesla fans of, of like, you know, remote controlling these cars and, and, you know, basically faking yeah, it. Not naming any um, names there, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. definitely don't want to give any individuals, uh, any oxygen on that, but, but, you know, so they get accused of that. Um, but they, you know, they're always really like, no, we don't do remote operation. We just do sort of remote guidance, which is, you know, very fundamentally different. Um, and yet they sort of blame the remote guidance here. Like, do you, do you feel like, you know, if the ability for someone to just take a human to take over and just drive you out of that situation, that the whole thing would have been resolved a lot, a lot quicker or more smoothly, or, or are you not sold on that? Yeah, I um I wasn't aware of uh uh folks like the the people at Phantom Auto and like what they're trying before before he reached out. Um but after I saw some of like what they're working on, I was able, and I was able to ask him some uh questions about their tech. I think it would be kind of cool if Waymo had something like that where they just drive the car at 2 miles per hour, you know, out of the lane and into the other and where and then I would just then they would halt the car and have somebody show up and fix it. Cause I think um, like at that, at the first pro I think, I think Jordan said it like at the first problem, that's where you should uh, immediately just say, give up and say, okay, that was failed. We'll learn from this. Right. Uh, don't, don't keep trying to fix it because then, you know, if it takes off again, when your roadside assistance, people are approaching the car, it's just a whole mess. Right. So, and I, I think I, I kind of agree with that. Um, from from an outsider's uh, perspective, I think. Uh, but uh, and uh, a few people uh, on the Tesla camp reached out to me and said that I I changed their minds on whether or not uh, Waymo is remote control, right? Because it's like, well, if they could have, then they would have, right? But I, <laughs> so, wow. I was like, hey, there you go. That's yeah. a good point. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I, the I, the latency <laughs> issue has been raised before with the remote control right but in low speed scenarios like that maybe that's the correct maybe that's the ideal application not the stress of having i think a lot of us think of the remote control someone there ready to take over in an instant and that just doesn't work um it's first of all it would be incredibly stressful to anticipate that 
latency issues, um, huge problem. But in these very low speed scenarios where you're just getting the vehicle out of a sticky situation or that last few feet to it within a parking lot, for example, to the correct drop-off zone. That seems like that would make sense. I guess the question is whether they want to make the investment into that type of you know, hardware and software to be able to add another layer in. The real question is uh, when <laughs> is how long before someone literally just offers a show a chauffeur as a cloud service and literally builds a business where they, they're fully transparent and says, if you pay us X, we will remotely drive your car and you're going to love it. <laughs> I mean, I guarantee you that's coming once it, it you know, latency is solved, but it doesn't, it's not how you profitably scale an autonomous vehicle business. That's a completely different thing. Yeah. But I mean, at the, at the same time, right? Like, like, yeah, I see, I see the appeal of, of remote guidance versus remote operation because, you know, in theory, one person can sort of do new guidance for multiple vehicles. So you can get that number of support people required down. Whereas operation, you know, fundamentally at any one given moment, you can only, you know, it's a one-to-one thing. You need one person to control each vehicle as they need it. Um, and uh, so, so it makes sense on some level, but then, you know, I think, and, and Kirsten, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about in, in all this is just from our ride in, in 2019, when we took our first driverless uh, ride for, for TechCrunch, um, you know, they really were the kind of the thing that they were talking about the most at that time wasn't the stuff on the, the driving side of the problem. It was sort of figuring out customer service edge cases. Um, and, you know, and, and I think, Joel, your this experience really validates that, like, you know, that's such a huge part. And, and I think a lot of people really underestimate how hard it is to provide good driverless, I'm sorry, good uh, customer service, you know, when there's no actual human in the vehicle with you. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to my earlier point, which is that for all those who are kind of like quietly chuckling, who are in the AV industry, working at other you know, companies, once they commercially deploy, they will be facing the exact same issues. And maybe some of it will be already resolved because the whole industry is sort of moving forward. Uh, But there is going to be edge cases, particularly in places like San Francisco and more complicated environments that are going to pop up that just haven't, you know, that don't pop up in Chandler maybe. Um, So I think that we're going to see a lot more of this over the next several years um, as more companies begin commercially deploying or dipping their toe into it, I guess, um, with robo-taxis. It's also why the concept of level five makes no sense because you would need a staff of people with off-road driving experience (laughs) available on call all the time to get you out of places you took your vehicle off-road and got stuck, assuming that the vehicle even could do it. Uh, but that's an entirely another episode. Joel, so I want to I want to ask you, I mean, you it's it's amazing watching the video. You're very calm about the whole thing, which is a really funny counterpoint to like this giant freak out and all these media stories and all this other stuff. <laughs> um, can you and and like I know from again when I had a driverless ride, you know, this issue, I think if you if you've ridden in a fully driverless vehicle before, this issue of trust um is a lot more clear. It was a lot more clear to me um, after after doing a fully driverless. But sort of like why, what, you know, why were you sort of so calm through all this? And like, 
how you know how do you sort of contextualize this this one episode which has gotten a, a lot of attention with sort of you know the the rest of the thousand over a thousand miles uh, of writing that you've done um what is your sort of yeah is it is this is this similar to other stuff that you've that you've seen is this sort of unique and and just sort of the role of safety and all that and feeling safe like did you feel unsafe at all Mm, yeah, honestly, no. I, this is very rare. It's a very rare situation, at least uh, what I've seen in all my rides. Um, I yeah, I've never felt unsafe in the Waymo vehicles. And, and there's been a couple of times where I'm a little bit apprehensive about if it's about to make a a right turn and there's a huge flow of traffic, right? But it always it always makes it it makes its way out safely. It always and it and I think they make an effort to to show the rider that the car knows what it's doing with the user experience stuff and i I'm, I'm really attached to that car screen like the car view where it shows you the visualization of everything there's like if i have any questions just look at that screen right so i'm like oh does it see that oh yes it does oh there's pedestrians right there oh the planner wants to go snake through here right it's it's all and really that that is like I don't think I would be as comfortable riding in those cars if it didn't have that visual screen. And I, and I think they know that because <laughs> it's, it's clear to me basically that they've put a lot of effort into the, the rider experience, I guess. And I, I think that's, that's probably what they're at least kind of focused on right now. Cause everything is really pleasant. Like the music that, that they play when you step in the car is pleasant and the sound design is pleasant. And I know that they've talked about it being in the key of E because it's a pleasing key. Like everything is just maximally tuned for comfort. And I think they did a good job. So I, I, yeah. And my experience, I, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really apprehensive about uh, riding in the, in the vehicles. So when, even when something rare like that happens, I'm like, I trust the process. Right. So I'm just kind of like, oh, I'm going along. I'll, you know, they'll, they'll fix it. They always fix it. You know, so I think the it's been an over a bit of an overreaction. I I kind of set AV Twitter on fire for a week, <laughs> so, but the it's I don't know. I'm just more frustrated that my good good driving content doesn't get more uh, the you know, viewership. It's like, hey guys, we'll we'll just going to some modern media. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, don't rub on the media too much, you guys. <laughs> yeah, uh, right, right. I, I did not write a sensational story about it, but I did mention it in the newsletter. I think that. Um, it does show how there is a lot of interest in AVs um, and that interest is only going to grow. Yes. There's a bit of uh, fervor once there's a mistake that's made, let's say. Um, but, you know, we'll see how your reader or your viewership grows. Now that people have seen that video, you might find yourself with more regular viewers on even the, um, the positive seamless rides. That's true. Yeah. It's been about double so far and other, and other companies, I want them to reach out. Uh, I'm in talks, early talks with crews for, uh, to film a video in their cars. So, Oh, I'd love to know more about that. When is that going to happen? Uh, I don't really have any details. I just, somebody, <laughs> somebody said DM me mm, until they were setting mm. up something, but the, all right. I, I, well, yeah. I can't wait to hear how that ride goes. I I will say this and then you know for the audience any all all y'all out there who are um working on commercializing robo taxis I think you should all invite Joel to take numerous rides not just one 
Uh, and then he'll report back to us, um, you know, fairly, fairly regularly or after these different rides and, and, uh, we can, we can have a, across the board, uh, evaluation, if you will, of, mm-hmm. of what's going on. So I'm sure that you'll get a call anytime from Argo, for example. Right. And, uh, <laughs> Zooks and Motional. Um, and, and, and the others, there's a bunch that are now going to be operating with driverless permits in California. So maybe you need to plan a road trip out there. Yeah. It's like everybody go ahead and make fun of Waymo on Twitter, but until we see your commercial deployment of a robo taxi service, I, I, you know, it's like, you can't, (laughs) you don't really have a leg to stand on. Right. So they're letting me in the car with a camera that, that takes some guts. Right. So. You know, it's fascinating because I have like like this really this episode really has shown how much like Schadenfreude people do feel about about autonomous vehicles. There's a lot of you know, and I think if you sort of are embedded in the space like like we are, it's easy to forget sort of that outside of of the folks who work in the business. There's there's a lot of people they get something out of seeing AVs fail, and like I understand that that makes a certain amount of sense. But like also you know, if if that's what you want to see. Um, you know, I would be laser focused on the company that says they're going to do vision only level five, you know, uh, (laughs) three years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that to me is just so like wildly at odds with, with the rest of the sector that like going after Waymo or any of these companies for like these relatively, you know, sort of ironing out the the kinks is how I see uh, that situation. Um, it's pretty absurd to me. Joel, where where can people uh, uh, find you and your work if they want to uh, see more videos of of Waymo or or your tweets? Yeah, so I try to publish two Waymo videos a week and keep them as open and honest as I can. I don't cut anything. Uh, just I t- try and tell it like it is. So I'm making videos on the JJ Ricks Rides with Waymo series. You can find me on Twitter at JJ Ricks underscore or JJ dot com for um if you want to search through the video archive for specific events like a disengagement or an unprotected left turn, or if you want to view my ride spreadsheet with all the metadata, like cost per mile, all that over on my website, jjricks.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Joel, for, uh, for taking the time to chat with us. Great to, great to have you on. Great to hear about your experience and uh, keep writing for us. Yeah, thank you so much. Will do. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much for joining us, Joel. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Atonicast. 